Hello. Hello. And welcome. This is episode seven. Oh. <laughs> episode, seven. episode 17 of Tacos and Tequila. See, we called it last week that we were going to start messing it up. So I messed it up. We definitely did say that. And <laughs> it happened a lot sooner than we thought. Whoops. <laughs> well, we're uh we're already getting um confused how far along we are, guys, apparently. <laughs> Sorry about it. Well, we have a very interesting case today. <laughs> I will tell you guys, well, I'm going to preface before we dive into the case and tell you because how I'm ending this story, I'm going to be really honest. It's pretty heavy. And the shit I get into <laughs> towards the end, Oof. like, we need a joke and a fact to bring us back. And I don't want to, like, be joking about how I found this case after the fact. So I'll preface this with the events that I'm about to speak about happen in a synagogue located in Metro Detroit. And I actually was driving the other day with my boyfriend and he said, hey, you see that building over there? Do you know what that is? And I was like, yeah, it looks like a synagogue. He goes, yeah, there was this crazy uh, event that took place there. You should look it up. And I looked it up literally that second while he was driving. And then five minutes later, after reading part of the article, I sent it to Sydney and said, holy shit, <laughs> we got to cover this. <laughs> And now we're here, friends. And now we're here. I will also say there are a lot of Jewish and Semitic, like, names and phrases. I listened to a lot of them out loud so I could try <laughs> to be sure I pronounced it correctly. And some of them I asked my boyfriend how to say and took notes on how it sounds phonetically. So in advance, if I say something wrong, I am very sorry. I am trying my best. <laughs> we should have brought the man's on as like an interpreter. I know. <laughs> well, he's out of town right now while we're recording for work. Or else I would totally have him help me here. <laughs> but I, when we talked earlier, I literally was going through my notes. And I was like, how do I say this? And after he said it, I'd like make the note. In my notes. And then Aww. read it back now. <laughs> so. Man. We got some interesting stuff. I'm going to teach you guys about some Jewish culture as well. So. <laughs> it's going to be a good one. <laughs> and bear with us. Because it might be a little longer than the last few ones. Bringing it back probably to an hour case. <laughs> I will. Uh, kind of. Set the scene here for us. On February 12, 1966, in Southfield, Michigan, terrible events were about to unfold at what was seemingly a normal Sabbath worship at the Jewish synagogue, Sharei Zedek. At the Shabbat service, gunshots would ring out horrifying more than 900 congregates and leaving both the criminal and the rabbi being rushed to the hospital all while everyone sitting in the synagogue witnessed everything unfold. Before we dive into the details and events of what happened, I just kind of want to go into a little bit of a background on the rabbi of the synagogue. I do want to chime in about um, something about what you've said so far, though. Yes, I was going to make a note of it, and then I took it out so you could use that as our sneak peek. <laughs> go ahead and say it. <laughs> February 12th is Abraham Lincoln's birthday. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend. You heard it here first. Abraham Lincoln is by far Sydney's favorite president. <laughs> she knows I think everything he might about be like him. My, my favorite human, though, too. Like, I never <laughs> met him, but I feel like we know each other on a spiritual level. I can tell you guys, I would like to do an Abraham Lincoln particular episode at one point. I feel like we know each other. We've bonded. I've been to some places that Abraham Lincoln's been there. <laughs> and spiritually, we were together. 
Gettysburg, Springfield. We go way back. Isn't he from your area too? Uh, Springfield, Illinois. So Illinois. Like three hours oh, from okay. me. Um, I think he was ori- he was originally born in uh, Kentucky though. Oh. And then okay. moved to Springfield. That's where he was, like, during his presidency reign, and then he moved out to D.C. You know, we could talk about all this in the episode all right, yeah, we'll get we're, Yeah, we'll get sidetracked talking about Abraham Lincoln for I the next hour. Yes, it's gonna, <laughs> this is going to be a three-hour episode before you know it. Okay, okay. Stay tuned, folks. We'll eventually do something on Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yes, it'll be good. It'll, it'll be spiritual. It'll be spooky. Stay tuned. Okay, back to our case today talking about the rabbi from the synagogue Share Zedek. Rabbi Morris Alder was a 59-year-old nationally known rabbi and he was actually one of the most revered rabbis in all of southeastern Michigan. The temple he taught at was one of the largest conservative synagogues in the entire country at the time. Morris Alder was born in Slutsk, Russia. Yes, that's how you say it. It's spelled just like it sounds. And I looked it up and listened to it to make sure I said it right, folks. <laughs> um, but he was born on March 30th in 1906. He immigrated to the U.S. with his parents in 1913 at the age of seven, and they resided in New York. For those of you who don't know, there's a very large Jewish population in New York. <laughs> If you've watched on Order SVU, you know this. <laughs> okay. Yes. Rabbi Elder's father was actually also a rabbi within the Jewish faith. When Morris Elder graduated from college in New York in 1928, he decided to follow in his father's footsteps by joining the rabbinate. Rabbinite? I don't know how to what say about it. The rabbits? That's it looks like it. <laughs> Um, But he was focused on becoming uh, more of a conservative rabbi, just like his father. He received his ordination in 1935 from the Jewish Theological Seminary and actually then briefly worked at a synagogue in Buffalo, New York. In 1938, Rabbi Morris Alder became an assistant rabbi at Share Zedek, where he remained for the next almost 39 years of his career. He became known as a rabbi for life in 1954. That was in quotes and multiple articles. I'm guessing what that means is he became an actual rabbi and not just the assistant rabbi. He had temporarily left the synagogue on only two instances. One was to serve as an army chaplain in the Pacific during World War II. And then once when he took a sabbatical to Israel for uh, several months. Rabbi Alder was heavily involved in the Metro Detroit community. I actually meant to call my grandfather and ask about him, but if anyone's from the Metro Detroit area and you have family members that were living in this area at that time, you should definitely ask if they've heard of him because he wasn't just known within the Jewish community. He was involved in a lot of adult education programs He became involved in a variety of religious groups, not just for the Jewish people in his community, but a lot of Christians and non-denominational people of the community. And he worked with several groups to improve communications between various Jewish denominations of the church as well. Alder was also an advisor to the United Auto Workers Union. If anyone, again, is from the Metro Detroit area, you'll that probably sounds really familiar to you and you'll know who they are. For everyone else who doesn't, that was a major union and a big player in the Metro Detroit area back in this time. That was the Motor City was really thriving in this time. And in the 50s and 60s, the this union specifically kind of reached its heights and peaks of enrollment. Not only was Rabbi Alder extremely involved in the community, but he was also involved and very present for his congregates. 
He offered a variety of religious services and counseling. And he was just overall very easily approachable and reachable within his church. So what happened that Saturday morning at this Shabbat service? Also, I'm going to say a lot of Jewish words that I didn't know what it meant. And I had to Google and then cross-reference with my uh, my source, who is very <laughs> knowledgeable in this. Okay, AKA, oh. yeah. <laughs> Let Jacob so, know. I'm uh, more of a... <laughs> Uh, I see a. I'm I'm reading through the article. Big Jewish word. Skip over it. Don't need to know what it means. Continue reading. <laughs> and, I've actually learned a lot more than I expected to learn about the Jewish faith, but that's because every time I found something, I'd be like sidetracked googling it. So, um, anytime I say a word that is like Yiddish or Hebrew, I will explain what it means. So Shabbat is just. The, it's another name for the normal Sabbath day services. And for those of you who don't know, Sabbath, the Sabbath day is not Sunday in the Jewish faith. It's Saturday. So it's a Saturday morning, like regular service. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> After Rob... <laughs> After Rabbi Alder finished his sermon that Saturday morning, he sat back down on the platform near a 13-year-old boy who was being bar mitzvahed that morning. Again, just to educate everyone and not assume you know what a bar mitzvah is, but it is when a young man or woman, and then it's considered a bat mitzvah, reach the age of 13 and are considered to have reached adulthood within the Jewish faith. At this point, they are considered old enough to participate in public worship, and there is a ceremony as well as readings from the Torah that take place. So Rabbi Elder finished his sermon, sat back down in this platform or stage. I'll use the phrase in a minute of what they call it. But he sat back down next to this child, and then another man rose up to speak. Cantor Reuven Frankel stood up and began prayers. Side note, cantor is a term for the person who sings the liturgical music and reads prayers within the synagogue. So Cantor Frankel looked up while he was reading the prayers and he saw Richard Wishnetsky, a 23-year-old congregate of the synagogue, walking up the aisle and stop only a few feet from Rabbi Alder and the 13-year-old boy on stage. And Richard then pulled out a 32 caliber pistol, aimed it towards the ceiling, and fired a shot. Obviously, the congregation was extremely stunned, but Rabbi Alder remained calm. After Richard fired the shot, he waved the pistol around and yelled, This congregation is an abomination and a travesty. It has made a mockery by its phoniness and hypocrisy of the beauty and spirit of Judaism. At this point, Rabbi Alder ordered everyone off the bima, which was the platform they were on, like the stage, kind of. And you, he said to everyone, you all get off. I know the boy. I will handle him. As Rabbi Morris Alder turned to face Richard, Richard fired four shots at the rabbi the last of which hit him in his head and then turned the pistol to his own head and pulled the trigger. In the congregation at this time, there's believed to be upwards of a thousand people. This includes visitors of an interfaith group, so Christians and Protestants that were guests of Rabbi Alder's, Richard Wisniewski's own mother, and Goldie Alder, the rabbi's wife. Upon paramedics' arrival, both men were still alive and were rushed to separate hospitals. So, who is Richard Wisniewski? As I mentioned, he was a 23-year-old congregate, and he was also a substitute teacher in the area. Rabbi Morris Alder was very familiar with Richard because he had actually counseled him and met with him several times in the months leading up to the shooting after a mental breakdown. Richard graduated from University of Michigan in 1954 
but from every account and article I could find, the assassination of John F. Kennedy really affected Richard. At first, I was like, okay, he was the president and he got assassinated. Like, this is so much that's going to derail your life. But I kept kind of digging. This was, I messaged Sydney earlier and said I found a lot of stuff. So just bear with me, folks. <laughs> oh, no. So apparently, while Richard was attending U of M, he actually met JFK once at a speech he gave in Ann Arbor, Michigan about the Peace Corps. And this was like a moment that truly inspired Richard and like took his life to like a whole new level. He, for months and years, he was like prepared to like after his education, join the Peace Corps. He wanted to give back. He, JFK was like a huge inspiration. I think they shook hands at one point. So when JFK was assassinated, he like deeply felt these concerns and it kind of seems that this is really when his mental illness started to take a hold on his life. The summer after he graduated college, Richard took a trip to Israel and by all accounts returned a very changed man. During his time in Israel, Richard became extremely interested in an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic sect within Judaism. I know I just said a lot of words that might not make sense. (laughs) So Judaism, there's obviously very different branches, just like there is of Christianity or Catholicism. Orthodox Judaism is a more strict and conservative, we'll say, form of Judaism. Taking that a step further with all Hasidic Jewish people are considered Orthodox, but not all Orthodox are Hasidic. (laughs) Essentially what that means is within the Orthodox conservative group, there is even more (laughs) of a stricter, extremer group, and they tend to be um, Hasidic Jews is what they are called. These people are definitely very much more extreme conservative, and a lot of them function just like everyday Americans. It's not like the Amish where they go off the grid or aren't in electricity. They have their maybe their own schools, but we have a lot of Hasidic Jews in our area as well. I've just learned that there's different levels to it, just like anyone, like I grew up in a Catholic church, in a Catholic school, anyone knows that there's very extreme areas or churches or divisions within Catholicism. Same thing with this. The group he became very interested in was more focused on like the old school way of he basically returned home at that point and decided he wanted to live a holy life, as he called it. But from all accounts of friends, he seemed to have a predisposition to violence and a contempt for anyone living their lives other than how he thought they should be. Basically, if you weren't in this ideal conservative view of your life, you were a sinner. Richard was always brilliant, according to every professor who ever taught him. I read you know, a couple different quotes from various professors, and he was always engaged in highly intellectual and theological conversations. He would engage with others in an extremely well-mannered way, but as time went on, that changed. Richard's ideas became very extreme, and no longer would he be engaging with others in a decent way. He would talk over them, yell, throw things, and flip furniture if they disagreed with his views. He began having tantrums, essentially, like this in his own living situation with roommates, at home with his parents. It essentially caused a lot of rifts with his roommates to the point where his parents had him committed at one point. Then he moved out from his roommates. It was a lot. Like, Sydney, do you know anyone that, like, you can't argue with them because they just get loud and obnoxious? Yeah, but I don't want to say who on the podcast because 
So I was thinking, like, <laughs> I'll use an example. I've made comments about, you know, an abusive relationship in the past. That relationship in that in that instance, my boyfriend at the time, I could not argue with him. Like, even if I disagreed with him, and it could be something as silly as, like, oh, no, I think Coke's way better than Pepsi. And, it like, if you have a different view, this is, like, essentially... It is. <laughs> well, I I think it very much is way better than Pepsi. <laughs> My dad might agree disagree. He likes Pepsi more. But we can have a civil conversation. I'm literally reading about Richard, and this is how I just picture it, is you cannot disagree about anything. Like, he just flails off. He's throwing furniture or flipping furniture, throwing things. Like, he's just getting obnoxious about it. And it became really unbearable, and he started really kind of pushing people away. Okay. According to one friend, he at one point said, while smiling, if God does not exist, life is not worth living, and I will kill myself. However, the same friend said that they had multiple conversations and kind of like follow-ups to this, and every time Richard had told her it was not his intention to kill himself, but if he ever did, it would be in the synagogue during the Sabbath services. As mentioned, Richard was a very smart man. After he had graduated from U of M, he was awarded a Woodrow Wilson Foundation Graduate Fellowship. It's a lot of words in one sentence. And spent a year studying sociology at the University of Detroit. He took various classes through Wayne State, Cornell University, and was actually accepted to a graduate study through the University of Chicago. While taking part-time classes at Wayne State, Richard also began working part-time as a teacher through the city of Detroit. However, his grades really started to plummet, and he was really not interested in school and eventually dropped out of classes. The six months leading up to the shooting, Richard was in and out of mental hospitals and psychiatric offices. He saw various mental health professionals and sought help from even a lot of religious leaders in the community. As mentioned, Rabbi Morris Elder had counseled him several times. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York. That was another one I had to look up. I was like, I'm never going to be able to say this. You're going to be like a fluent Yiddish speaker by the end of this episode. <laughs> He's going to come home and be like, what the heck? Also Um, true. But also known as the Rebbe. And so I had never heard of him before, but he's actually, he was considered to be one of the most influential Jewish leaders in the entire world in the 20th century. And his office sat in Brooklyn, New York. And Richard had visited there several times to visit and for counseling. After the shooting occurred, his parents would tell the police that he had actually been under psychiatric care for two to three years on and off. I'm going to give you a heads up. I have a couple excerpts, a a couple um, things I wanted to read. And I'm going to have to read them for like word for word how they are typed so at one point while richard was in a private psychiatric facility his father petitioned the court to have him instated to the actual ypsilanti state hospital and i want to read the letter his father wrote to the court verbatim because it's like reading it today i was like holy crap this is like a father wrote this about his son And I actually found this in an article by Commentary Magazine. Please check our sources if you're interested in this story. It's got a really interesting side. It not only has the case of what happened and a little bit of history on Rabbi Elder, but it really heavily focuses on the history of Richard. So in this letter, his father wrote, He has been extremely hostile, belligerent, and threatening recently. He has threatened to smear his family with scandal, although in reality there is no scandal to spread. He has threatened to burn up his mother's car and the family home. 
He broke his mother's golf club in a fit of anger. He also broke a large glass tabletop at home. He has threatened to smear the University of Detroit with scandal if they did not prematurely release his scholarship funds to him so that he could use these funds to go to Europe instead of the university. He has been extremely hyperactive, does not sleep, makes innumerable phone calls all day and night, says he is going to get a date with President Johnson's daughters. He is at times very depressed, alternating with a very agitated, frenzied behavior. Although very bright, he uses his intellect to verbally slaughter those around him in a very belligerent and hostile manner. It was a lot. <laughs> Oof, that was definitely a lot. And it so that's like a really good description of like showing he has like a lot of erratic behavior. Absolutely. And uh is very aggressive and angry. <laughs> Although I don't know where President Johnson's daughters fit into there, but yeah, that was just like a an extra detail. I feel like that got thrown in there. I really tried hard not to laugh when I was saying it because I'm just like, what the heck, man? Random as hell. <clears throat> so along with the letter that his father wrote and statements from two doctors who considered Richard to be a danger to himself and others, the petition was granted and Richard was moved to the state hospital. However, after 10 days there, Richard was granted freedom to all of the hospital's grounds, and after being there less than a month, he left the hospital permanently with the help of an attorney. After his stay in the hospital, Richard was back to living with his parents, but would disappear for days at a time. He would bounce around to friends or colleagues, professors, his parents, but then would disappear again and all of them would be worried. I also read he would occasionally show up at his old roommate's place and, like, yell at them, telling them that they ruined his life. <laughs> he, at this time, was also writing a lot of threatening and bizarre letters, but never sending them out. Richard also wrote manifests of sorts and a lot of stories of killing various figures one was the Secretary of Defense at the time, and it ended up being like a six-page handwritten short story of how he would kill the Secretary of Defense. That's not good. No. And so, like, I went into, like, a lot of great detail into Richard's background because I feel like it's the epitome of, like, every red flag of a mental break. It was just very jarring to read it all. There was a lot of scribblings and a lot of writings. There was a lot of religious ramblings. Um, I read at one point what the Reb, I think it's Reb, Rebbe, had told him in New York when he went to visit was that he was young, he should focus on his studies, and when he turns 50, if he wants to pivot and focus more on conservative, not conservative, um, like ultra-Orthodox views, then that's when he could pivot, but he recommended he wait. So even, like, this major you know, figure across the globe for Judaism. He was telling Richard, like, hey, come back from this abyss and this edge that you're going on. Be present in your life. Although Richard was seemingly losing it in some aspects, several weeks before the incident, he had started working full-time as a substitute teacher in a Detroit public school. Even then, though, when he was doing that and his family felt pretty confident, he had gone back to see a psychiatrist he hadn't seen in months, and his family was super happy, but he would still start disappearing for days at a time. About a week and a half before the shooting, Richard drove down to Toledo, Ohio, and purchased a 32 caliber gun, and essentially fell off from anyone he was really involved with at that point. The night before the incident, 
Richard had stayed in a hotel and checked himself in there with only the clothes on his back and a small satchel, which included various items, including some extreme religious writings and books, a Bible, a Torah, the 32 caliber gun, pen, and paper. The whole incident that happened within the synagogue was actually caught on a tape recorder. The synagogue used electrical equipment to record services for a permanent record, especially when it was involved with bar mitzvahs. And so this service was being recorded when the shooting occurred. You could hear very clearly the events that happened and everything that was said. Richard Wisniewski died four days later in the hospital from the injuries he occurred. It caused immediate brain damage and he was paralyzed and he obviously did not last very long from those injuries. Rabbi Morris Alder would die of his injuries almost a month after the shooting occurred and he had been lingering in a coma since the incident. His funeral took place on March 13th and was attended by more than 9,000 mourners. This was the largest funeral in Detroit ever and is actually still considered to be the largest funeral. That's absolutely insane. The insane. Number of people. One article only said 6,000 and that still listed it as the largest funeral. And like a couple others said nine. So we're going with the bigger number. <laughs> Even 6,000, though, that's a lot of freaking people to show well, that, up. I was going to say, that just, like, goes to show you how much of, like, an impact he made, not only on, like, his community, but, I mean, he was, like, nationally renowned. He was involved in a lot of things outside of the Jewish faith within the Metro Detroit area. And I think that's like a big part of it, too, is he was so big on like communicating with the community and being there for the community. While police were investigating the case, they spoke with several of Richard's friends or acquaintances and confirmed he did speak of suicide and death quite often. The last, like, piece of information I have for you guys is that there was a note that was found after the shooting occurred in which Richard wrote the night before, and I will read what it stated verbatim. Again, you can find this in the Commentary Magazine article. My distorted, disoriented voice, either barely uttered, or tremendously violent gives you a slight horrifying glimpse into the dehumanized future that awaits you and your unfortunate children who will be healthy, comfortable, and secure beyond your fondest dreams and just as diseased. Since I feel that I am no longer able to make any significant creative contributions, I shall make a destructive one. What happened in Sheree Zedek happens only once in a lifetime. Suffer in your frozen hells of apathy. Boil in the self-hate of outraged impotence. Listen to my voice, you deaf ones. Listen to how sick, sad, lonely, and forlorn it is. It was Jeez. a lot. <laughs> it's, um... It was heavy. I told you guys in the beginning it was heavy. It was very, very heavy. Um, so, yeah. Uh, during the research, I actually read a Detroit Free Press article. It was originally published. The story was followed originally and was immediately reported front news in the Detroit Free Press the day after the shooting. They shared an update and an article about it. I've got to say what, 2016. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like 50 year anniversary. Yeah, I think that's what it was because I saw that. Yeah, 50 year anniversary, and uh, I scrolled all the way to the bottom of that article, 
And usually I don't do that, but I did. And there were like a, not a lot of comments, but there were some comments on the page. And it was really interesting because, okay, I lied. It was not the free press article. (laughs) I was on a different article and I found it. But um, according to one person that commented in 2018, he said, as a rabbi today, I continue to be inspired by the printed sermons and teachings of this great Rabbi Alder. His eloquence and his values are just as powerful today as ever, and he lives on, not only in his beautiful family, but in his words of Torah. And I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, that's more than 50 years later, and Another person is commenting saying they're still reading his teachings and still using his sermons. And um, I just thought it was a it was very inspiring that this man was just like so devoted to his community and his faith and his religion. And he definitely seemed to have made an impact. Absolutely. And I mean, it's extremely interesting that that many years later like he's still that big of a deal out there in their religion and in their right lives i mean and then i will also say um i couldn't find anywhere about like his family i know i mentioned his wife Mm -hmm. um but one of the comments on this and i'm not sure how accurate this is But one of the comments said, like, thank you for sharing the memory of my grandfather. I'm glad he knows. I know that he lives on. So it does sound like he had children and grandkids. So that's um, that's good, too. That's like another way his memory lives on. And as tragic as it is that the rabbi lost his life. It could have been way worse. Oh, yeah, it could have been a whole massacre oh yeah and it's really ludicrous to think that the like this kid he was a kid he was young i mean i guess he was an adult but you know what i mean he was 23 years old he hadn't even lived what a a quarter of his life he could have potentially lived Mm -hmm. and he just walked right in in front of over a thousand like potentially over a thousand people and shot and killed the rabbi. A lot of people. And his mother was in the in the crowd. And I will say, I'm gonna say this with a uh, <laughs> a caveat that I not all not all people in this situation are the same. So I won't I won't like let you think that I'm def- defending all of the criminals like families. A lot of families help protect and and um breed these people in an environment where they could be really toxic but we tend to forget too in today's society that Richard's family would also be victims of the event that occurred and so I recently listened to a few um, episode parts on a different podcast about the Columbine shooter well, the shooters, there's two of them, but the one specifically, his mother has done a TED talk and she's super involved in the community and speaks out often about like mental health and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, she had said she was so torn in that, that instant incident that had occurred because she was grieving for her son that she, as she knew him, but she was devastated of what he did and was grieving for his victims. So Richard's family was also, that was just my side note and tangent to include it in the fact that Richard's mother, own mother, sat here and witnessed it as well, which just can be very traumatic for her. I think that that's a a really good point because I do feel like that is something that in many circumstances is often forgotten about, that you know the killer in many circumstances their family is also losing a family member. Exactly. And a lot of them don't know that person to be a a bad, evil, horrible monster. No, there's um, that show on... What the fuck is that show called on ID Network? And it's like... 
about people that it's about the families yes it's about the families that lived with like monsters and all of the people like the stories that they have to tell are like yeah i didn't know my dad was a killer like you know there was weird circumstances and like there was things that had happened but like they're also in shock and like dealing with it like this is a person that they didn't know and they have to come to terms with it too well and like the golden state killer Mm -hmm. he did all these horrible awful things and wasn't caught for like what 50 years he wasn't caught and that's his family never knew him to be a violent horrible awful person no. There might have been red flags here and there. They might have remembered weird things or like looking back now, certain things make sense. But, you know, as, as that's your father, your uncle, your wife, you know, you might not know. Like, no, <laughs> I my example all the time, BTK's wife, oh, yeah. you know, her her and the children knew nothing. He was. By all means, a great father. He was never angry. He was never violent. He never beat his children in any capacity. His daughter was, like, horrified when it all came out. And no one wanted to believe it in his family because that's not the man they knew. It's really crazy how you can, like, live these double lives. In Richard's case, it definitely sounds like his family really tried. I mean, his dad petitioned the court to try and get him institutionalized against his will. Yep. It's just, I think that there's so many, so many cases out there where these people either didn't realize how far gone that individual was in their life and then they committed a crime that was traumatic and crazy, or they had to witness the crime. I mean, imagine that, too to be yeah I don't know that's wild and sorry my last like final thoughts and notes here I will say too is it for it being and like taking place in like the mid-60s his family his friends and even his faith-based community they really did what they could to try and counsel him and get him on the right path for mental health a lot of articles I read basically said he was, you know, in and out and going to various psychiatric facilities or uh, psychiatrists and things like that. He would never stay with one counselor or therapist or psychiatrist uh, psychiatrist for more than a few months. He would then leave. He'd take a gap, and then he'd go. When he'd start going back, he'd go see someone else. So he never really. He never did his part either because in mental health, you, everyone around you can only do so much. You also have to start taking accountability to get better. And I will say, like, I was very impressed with being how long ago it was being at a time period where mental health wasn't a thing commonly addressed or taken care of. It still isn't. But especially back then. You know, props to all of them for seeing the signs and trying to do what they could. And unfortunately, it just, this horrible incident still occurred. It's very true. I think mental health and the way it was handled previously and for them to make those moves, like, that's pretty crazy. Because you would think that that's not something that I feel like is normalized until like recent years yeah and it's still not like talked about enough (laughs) no absolutely not i won't go on my soapbox tangent i'll just say if you have mental health issues again as i mentioned in the (laughs) mini-sode episode please seek help there's nothing wrong with it um if better help ever sponsors us I will love to be um, a spokesperson yes. for better health therapy. That if you need to take medication, I've been there. There's nothing wrong with that. Just do what you have to do to get better. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm done. I ranted a lot. I had a lot to say in this episode. Hopefully we're keeping it under an hour here now for you. (laughs) And I will let you uh, end us on a better note, Sydney. Joker effect. Um, 
Let's go fact first. Tequila can't be called tequila unless it contains at least 51% of blue agave. Really? So, according to a Mexican law, anything that contains less than 51% blue agave cannot technically be called tequila. That's wild. And it's a Me- it's like Mexican law. Yeah, according to the to the internet. <laughs> Well, that's wild. Okay. Hit me with the joke. We had high standards. I think last episode was, like, our best joke yet, so I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah, this one's not too great, then. Um, <laughs> why, why was the chicken hesitating to cross the road? Why? Because on the other side of the road, there was a Taco Bell. <laughs> Why were they hesitating? I was Man, thinking be running. <laughs> I was thinking because of like I don't know if chickens eat tacos. Oh, why? Well, or guess. can their digestive system take tacos? Well, now you got to get all scientific on it. I might guess like, no, no, I'm no, sure they have just, a grain diet. Like, <laughs> were they gonna just, like become chicken meat? Like the human, like the human digestive system in Taco Bell doesn't always work out either. So same thing. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, that was it. Was a it was, I give it like a B. It's not as good as Jalapeno Business. Jalapeno Business was a really good one. Oh. <laughs> if you're jumping I- in at episode 17 and you missed the first 16, you're missing out, people. Uh, yeah, I mean, at least listen to the joke, I guess. Like, I don't know, guys. <laughs> I don't know. I see how these I don't know what kind of animals listening. look at that, listen to it out of order, but also they do just skip episode like one, two, and three at this point, guys. If you start listening, <laughs> no, I see the numbers. These fucking people are wild, and they'd be listening to episode seven out of the woodwork. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's really crazy to see, like. How many views you have on one episode, and then you have like double on the next episode. Like, okay. <laughs> but thank you for everyone who keeps listening and supporting us. Um, this episode will be coming out on the 27th. So, good news if you were not aware and have checked out our social media pages, our website is live. Go to Facebook or Instagram. It'll show you the link and how to access it. We'll post all about it. I don't have the link in front of me yet, but eventually (laughs) we will be including that at the end of our episodes. (laughs) Um, Also, check us out on Facebook at Tacos and Tequila Podcast. Instagram at Tacos and Tequila. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rate and review. Uh, The ratings are great. I know we have more ratings than reviews. But reviews are even better, guys. Like, let us know what you think. We appreciate it. And it helps us get noticed more the more reviews we have. So any of that would be greatly appreciated. Yes, please. And... We can see how many of you actually are listening, and the numbers don't add up with how many reviews there are or ratings, so it's rather confusing. (laughs) Very confusing. But But, if that's how you want to be, okay. (laughs) And I was going to say, I think we have some um, fun stuff still coming. I know we teased that we'll have merch soon, which we will. We're working on it. And we probably are going to do some promotions for various things. So keep that in mind, folks, when you're active on our social media pages. And follow us and, like, subscribe, whatever, because we're going to have a bunch of stuff coming for you guys. What about trivia? Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so last week I asked everyone who helped authorities profile the Green River Killer while they were in prison. The options were Jeffrey Dahmer, Eileen Wuornos, Ted Bundy, and Edmund Kemper. Do you know the answer, Sydney? I'm not sure. I'm uh, guessing Kemper. Okay, so that would be my guess, but it is not. It's actually Ted Bundy. They had a lot of similar MOs. And so the FBI went to the Green River, went to Ted Bundy to help profile the Green River killer. And he was a lawyer and had all this like psychology knowledge and liked to talk in hypotheticals all the time. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, well, I'll probably, you'll probably folks see some short, sort of short clipper video coming about that soon. (laughs) Yes. I want to hear more. I gave everyone a difficult one to start. Well, last week's. So I will, I don't want to say give like an easier one. But kind of. (laughs) Sydney will 100% know the answer to this one. This is going to be like a celebrity type of question. Okay, I'm just going to ask the question. I don't want to give anything away. (laughs) So this week's trivia question. This punk rock star stabbed his girlfriend to death in Greenwich Village, New York, in 1978. A, Joey Ramone. B, Henry Rollins. C, Sid Vicious. Or D, John, Johnny Rotten, Lydon. Oh, shit. (laughs) So, it's... I think it's an easier question than last week's question, personally, but we'll let you guys decide. Uh, We'll also, we post the question as, like, a poll and survey. Uh, We are pretty interactive on social media with it, so check it out. Again, we already told you where to follow us, but um, keep an eye on our social media pages for all fun stuff coming for you all. I think that's all I have. That's all I have, too. Okay. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.